Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Miriam Boulos was born in Beirut just two years after the official end of the 17-year civil war. Her childhood was spent living in the shadow of conflict without context, as her parents' generation refused to talk about what had happened. At 16, she began using a camera to question Beirut, its politics and its people, and also to better understand her place within it. Now her practice is rooted in community and resistance, exploring the ways our bodies metabolize trauma, assert resistance, seek pleasure and express layers of identity. During our conversation, we talk about Miriam's projects through the lens of intimacy, survival, political agency, and revolution, and perhaps most importantly, consent. It's not only about having this contractual consent, it's also about knowing what's behind the photo and the person. It's about creating this bridge. And for me, photography is, before anything else about this, the magic that happens during this encounter between what was happening in my head and in my reality, in my life, and in the reality of the person in the picture. I'm Jen Fletcher, and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Miriam Boulos graduated with a master's degree in photography in 2015. From there, she has taken part in both national and international exhibitions, as well as having her work published by Time, Dazed, Vanity Fair, The Washington Post and The New Yorker. She is the co-founder and photo director of Al Haya magazine, and in 2021 she joined Magnum and is currently working on her first book, What's Ours, in collaboration with The Aperture. One of the things that I find really interesting about your work is that it's inseparable from your life in many ways. And so I wanted to ask you about your upbringing and how that informed your creative work or artistic life. Actually, I was born right after the end of the civil war in Lebanon. So it was kind of a phase where people needed to protect themselves and kind of move on. I'm not generalizing, but at least I know that my parents kind of needed that. So we grew up kind of in a little bubble, very much protected and in a way in our own world. And I think that growing up this way did affect my work in a way because like there is this kind of fascination and craving for understanding the context in which I I live uh, that came out of this little bubble, I would say. It feels like when we've talked about it before, there's this roots, there's almost in kind of what you were saying in terms of your parents and and other people wanting to sort of mentally move on from that experience that Mm -hmm. kind of had a reverse effect in you in in terms of like you seeking visibility of that context, and which is something that I see throughout your work. You know, the flash is really important for you in terms of visibility. There's so much about revealing your truth or the real lived experiences of your collaborators and yeah it feels like so much of it is rooted in that yes it's very true and 
you were talking about the flash and it's kind of a way of trying to to see things that are not visible just like this with I don't know how we say this with a naked eye mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's a way of trying to make things real concrete appearing uh, uh, I don't know how we say this word but like visible mm-hmm. yeah exactly it's a, it's a way of validating yes yes I think like a great way to kind of explore that further is to talk about Night Shift, which is a pro- one of your early projects that actually I haven't talked to you about considering we've talked so much about other work over the last sort of, I don't know, maybe four years, five years. Uh-huh. But Night Shift is this really incredible project of black and white images with the really strong flash, all shot at night. Could you tell us a little bit about that work and how it came into being? Yes, of course. Uh, so actually it was the first like a real project that I worked on. And I started it when I was uh, 20, 20 years old. And back then I only took pictures in black and white and at night. Because for me, this is, it's a thing that I always say, but it's a thing that I really felt. So I think it's important to say. I felt like at night, the social map of Beirut and Lebanon would suddenly appear as if like we, we threw some chemical on it to... To see the city. So I just realized that it's kind of parallel to what I say about the flash. And I think they do come together, the flash and the night, because in a very technical way, I used to have fun with the flash at night. For example, to put my flash, my my light on things that we couldn't see and then overexpose them in post-production, in the retouching. And I chose back then the context of the nightlife, not only the night, because in a way I was fascinated by how people had this need to go out. It was kind of chronic need. And I did not have this need, and I still do not have this need <laughs> to, to go out like every night or every weekend and to party. But at the same time, I did share with the people I photographed the roots of this need, which was kind of a way of, I think that the nightlife is kind of uh, uh, close and similar to revolutions in general. It's a way of collectively exteriorizing everything that we're taught to bottle up. Yeah, so I did share this root of the need of partying with the people I photographed. I think that by taking these pictures, I was also already exploring my way of coping with things And in a way, without knowing it, I was already exploring my neurodivergence, I think. I do want to touch on tenderness, which is another body of work that followed Night Shift, which again sort of has ties with newer projects you're making, which we can talk about later. But it's this incredibly important body of work that depicts sexually liberated lovers and individuals shot naked in the city. and And it feels like such a sort of poetic riposte to state violence and a lot of the restrictions that young people felt in Beirut at that time? That's very true, because from one side, I was taking pictures, like this project Tenderness came from the need of taking pictures in people's intimacy, because back then I thought that this was the space in which we can resist to the context in which we live and like create bubbles of safe spaces. But I realized later that I actually started this series at a point where I was coming out of an abusive relationship. And it was actually very linked to this too, because it was a way of exploring the fact that in intimacy, we can 
create safe spaces, but at the same time, we can be very much exposed to violence, uh, physical, of course, but also emotional violence. Yeah, and I think this is what I was trying to tackle. And I think that we see it in the images because it's true that the series is called Tenderness, but at the same time, the outcome, like visually, it it is not really tender. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is kind of violent. There's a real intensity to it. Yes, yeah. One of the things that you've said before is that you describe the experience of the revolution as happening in your country, but also happening inside you, which yeah. I feel like is, is such a powerful sentiment. And I'll let you kind of like unravel that in a minute, but like your visual language, which was already there, as I said, but it sort of became more concrete, like everything had greater intensity. It felt like there was an unapologetic urgency that arrived in your work that perhaps was like bubbling under the surface, but mm-hmm. it really just got into its stride with the revolution work, which you call What's Ours. And also it was one of those things where your work became center stage. You know, I saw your work on blogs and across the world before that, but there was a real spotlight on you and you became almost like a key visual voice of that time, which obviously unraveled into lots of different things. But yeah, it feels like such a defining moment for you as an artist in both personally and professionally. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, I guess, how the revolution shifted your work, but what the experience of making What's Ours meant to you. The first thing that I can say is that I think that this moment was so important for me and for everyone who lived it, that personally it completely changed me as a human being and also as a photographer. And we were talking about tenderness right before a night shift, and we were talking about the normalized corruption and silencing of the situation. And I realized now while talking to you that before I didn't use to include text in my work and it is kind of linked to us being silenced in a way. And during the revolution, as you were saying, I suddenly had a lot of exposure or visibility. And I realized that Photography is my biggest privilege, actually, because it's a way of expressing myself. Like, it's a whole language for me. And at the same time, it's a way of, like, through these big platforms, I have the privilege also to communicate what I need to express. And this was in a context where everyone was on the street shouting, trying to express themselves and not being heard. So realizing this really affected my work. And this is where I come back to the words. This is where I started to add words in my work. I started to include fragments of diary and fragments of conversations with people I had uh, photographed, but also with the conversations with people I, not only people I photographed. And I think that this is one of the things that really affected and changed my practice and my work. And this is also the moment where I started taking pictures during the day and mostly in colors. So it's as if we suddenly were able to see things more clearly in a way. Consent is a really important part of your practice. And I remember you saying to me that you believe consent in photo is as important as consent in life. Can you talk about the practicalities of how you navigate consent in your work? 
I just want to say that when I talk about consent, I'm not policing anyone and I'm, I'm not saying that everyone has to work the way I work, but it's very important for me. I became conscious of the importance of consent during the revolution and before I was simply not aware of its importance. Yeah, so concretely how things happen. So it depends on each situation, of course, like again, like anything in life. Mm -hmm. But uh, if we talk about the context of the revolution, even when we were in the tear gas running and like not being able to see anything, I would stop people and tell them, like, I took a picture of you. Can I have your number in order to send you the picture and like to have your consent on every step of the way. But it's not only about having this contractual consent. It's also about knowing what's behind the photo and the person. It's about creating this bridge. And for me, photography is, before anything else about this, the magic that happens during this encounter between what was happening in my head and in my reality, in my life, and in the reality of the person in the picture. And also, I'm a person who gets very quickly overwhelmed. So... I enjoy taking the number of the person in order to be able to go deeper in the encounter and the conversation later. So by WhatsApp or whatever works. It's not about one moment. It's about building a longer relationship with your collaborators, right? Exactly. It's about the different experiences of the moment of the picture and the reality that comes with it on many levels. This work has had a huge impact in terms of visibility through different news outlets that it's been published on. But it also sparked this really complex debate on social media, which kind of resulted in a bit of a backlash or probably better phrased as online shaming or bullying towards you. And I wondered if you're comfortable, could you talk a little bit about this experience? Because I think it's something that more and more photographers are having to deal with. I was posting my work in a very impulsive way. I would like come back home and post the images automatically on Instagram. And I think that my images became a context to conversations that were meant to happen. And yeah, I think that the revolution in itself awoke a lot of classicism. And the, we can call this backlash, but the bullying and shaming that I went through was mostly based on this, on classicism. From one side, people were saying that I'm not representing us because I was representing different social circles and not only people with Chanel bags. Uh, <laughs> and until now, I don't really know what us means, honestly, uh, because Lebanon is extremely contrasted. And from another side, there were some people who said that uh, I was in a more privileged position than some people I was representing and that they were the revolution and not all the rest of the people. So yeah, everything came from a, a question of classicism. <laughs> How did it feel like for you to have to navigate that? Because I feel like this is something that's happening more and more to photographers, I guess, because people feel more empowered on social media to speak up and incite trouble a lot of the time. But it's interesting to see how this is affecting photography. And I guess from my perspective, like my care for photographers and what that means. And, and obviously you're someone who's very responsible about your work. I'm sure everyone can hear that in terms of how you speak to your values around it. But it's almost like this additional labour 
that for certain photographers have to take on now? I don't see it as labor because you you said the right word, which is responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I learned this the hard way through very unnecessary uh, violence, which was like the cyberbullying. But it made me realize the responsibility of what I'm doing, like the responsibility that I am carrying. And it's uh, an important thing, I think. But yeah, the the violence was completely unnecessary. But I think this is another question. This is another subject. And for example, until now, this violence is still like following me. For example, while I, I was working on the sequencing of the book that I'm working on with Aperture, I kept on asking myself if the choices I was making were linked to the trauma from this cyberbullying or if it is my own judgment. It's, uh, yeah, it's still hard to say. Yeah, it's really complicated to work through, right? There's mm-hmm. still so much metabolization of what even your experience with the revolution and then, then the explosion and the general like political and social strife of everything that's happening mm-hmm. in the country. It, it's a lot. It's, it's interesting how you're really attuned to that in this other related creative process and how we have to reckon with our own sort of inculcated judgments. That's so interesting. Do you feel like you've got to a point where you've resolved that with the with the editing and found your path through it? I still don't know if the choices I made are me trying to protect myself or I don't know. <laughs> mm. Oh, it's it'll be interesting to see how you feel with it over time. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. We should probably give a bit more context to the book. So you're you're making a book with Aperture about your work around the revolution. And it also includes the explosion in the Beirut harbour as well. Is that right? Yes, actually, the book is called What's Ours. And it's literally about reclaiming what's ours in different forms. There are pictures from 2013 until 2023. So it's a period of 10 years, which happens to be my 20s. And the context of the revolution and the explosion are very present. Like they're a kind of the timeline of the book. One of the things that I feel like is so generative about making a book, even though it's an extraordinary painful experience in my experience and from what I've heard from other people, because there's a sense of turning yourself inside out I think when you're really involved in the work and you're really emotionally connected to it and like you said it can bring up unexpected things that you just didn't see coming which can be quite Mm -hmm. difficult to process but I think one of the generative things about it in the context of what you're saying is that in doing the book once it's out in the world it's going to encourage a whole host of new conversations. I often find people say to me that they find it really helpful because in the same way as sometimes when we put on a show like actually putting the work out there allows us to understand it I think sometimes making a book helps us resolve some of these things we might have been grappling with or things we didn't even realize we're grappling with but through conversation and through that sort of triangle of connection between the subject matter the artist and the audience like I don't know something like I may sound woo-woo, but I think something quite kind of magical and affirming can happen through that process. This is what makes me kind of anxious because it's kind of setting in stone because like an exhibition, it happens and then it disappears. Mm. 
and then a book it's paper and it's here to stay <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the work you did around the explosion because that again that work is so powerful and it was a terrible catastrophe that happened on an already sort of fragile and fragmented political mm -hmm. and social situation and I, I'm still in awe honestly of the work that you made during mm -hmm. that time because you know I I can't even imagine what you were going through as a citizen but also you know the people that you were collaborating with mm -hmm. it feels like almost like an impossible situation to sort of even attempt to process that in real time but your impulse again as as I sort of touched upon before your your impulse to care for your community for your country feels like maybe it was the survival strategy that you needed in that moment like you couldn't yes. feel you almost just had to act yeah definitely from one side I really felt a responsibility to document again from a local point of view what's what was happening And literally, like, the same day, photo editor started contacting me. And in the next morning, I already had my assignments booked for the upcoming month. <laughs> so wow. I knew that it was going to be a lot, but like, I felt like I had to do it. And at the same time, it's very contradictory, actually. At the same time, I was trying to tell to myself that taking pictures has always been my way of coping with things. So this would be my way of trying to understand what happened because it was really like beyond anything that I could understand, like emotionally or very practically in my brain. But yeah, I, I'm not sure that in this case, photography was the, <laughs> was the best solution for myself. But as a document. Tourist. I don't know how you say this word. It was an evidence that I had to do this. It's interesting, isn't it? Do you feel like now looking back, you should have cared for yourself in, in different ways? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you can go back. It's kind of a exactly. pointless question. Like you can't go back. But I feel like it's that learning, right? In a lot of our subsequent conversations, we've talked about the mental load of making this work, which yeah. absolutely, you know, the responsibility, the actual action and agency of making this work is so vital, but it doesn't mean that it's not really hard going for you, mm -hmm. not just physically in the moment, but also just emotionally, because you're, you're so in tune with these experiences and you're, you're experiencing them. You're not an outsider, mm -hmm. you know, parachuting in, this is your life and your community. Yes. But I think this is linked to one of the first questions you asked about planning things, because even today, like three years after the explosion, I still know that I keep on putting work and documenting first when I know that I have to take care of myself and like, I'm doing it again, like reproducing the same, if you want to call them mistakes or reaction full disclosure it's something that while we're working in very different contexts and political situations like I I still am trying to and I'm a decade older than you like I'm still trying to figure this out myself mm -hmm. and I think I think I guess that's why I feel like it's important to talk about because while there's a different type of emotional load in a political situation like that I think a lot of photographers who are fully involved in their practice and working through different 
types of creative or emotional or personal mm -hmm. issues as um, like using photography as a salve for that or, or a survival strategy. I think it can be really difficult to know if there's a line of like, where am I making the most authentic and important work for me, but also how am I taking care of myself yes. in this? And it's so hard. The Sexual Fantasies Project was an answer to this question. Like it, it was a way of focusing more on what is present in me independently from the situation. Yeah, tell people about this because this body of work, which is ongoing, is just unbelievable. And it's one of, you know, it's one of my favorite projects that you've ever done. And oh. it just continues to just really wow me it's really really powerful work and also like really strikes liberation in me honestly I think oh. it's I think it's amazing I have a big smile again <laughs> <laughs> actually I've been wanting to work on sexual fantasies in general since I discovered my own and I started exploring my own sexual fantasies so this was about eight years ago something like this I think that maybe tenderness was a way of starting to explore this in a way, maybe. And then after the explosion, uh, literally one or two months after, I realized that I needed to preserve myself and I needed to focus on something that is present in me independently from everything that is imposed, that is and was imposed to us by the situation of the country. So I very impulsively made this open call saying, if you're a woman and you want to share your sexual fantasy, send me an email. And everything just started naturally. Like Also, it's important to say that uh, when I started to explore my own sexual fantasies, I already started like from one side the research, from another side, having conversation with anyone I would see about this, not in a creepy in a creepy way, just in a <laughs> natural way. Mm -hmm. It's like all of my other projects. It's very linked to me and it came very naturally. Yes. Tell people about how these collaborations sort of unravel because again it, there's this very sort of ethical partnership in how you make the work. You know, your collaborators are very active and make a lot of the creative decisions? So every time I receive an email, like an answer to the open call, I ask the person how she wants to be photographed, how she imagines the image, if she wants to be present in it or not, whether she wants to hide or show. Like we, we create the image together. We work on the styling and the location scouting together. And... Yeah, it's very much a collaborative process. I just want to stress to the listeners, like, this is no easy feat making a project like this. Like, it it, it demands of you as the artist to work slowly and sensitively and ensuring at all stages and sort of steps that not just in the making the work, but also in how the work's talked about. You know, when I've, I've written about this project, I know you have diligently gone back to every single participant to check they're comfortable with the work yeah. being seen in whatever publication I was writing in and I, I think that's just so important to flag because uh, as I said earlier I don't think it's something that everybody does and I appreciate you know you're just talking from your experience but for me as somebody who's looking at your process I guess from sort of a bird's eye view I just think it's really important I, I think a lot of especially young artists struggle with grappling with this and I think hearing your story and how you go about it could help inspire people in terms of how they sort of build or find their own route into yeah a more collaborative way of working thank you 
One of the things that I love about the sexual fantasies work is how it undoes this impulse we have as women not to take up space. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in most cultures, women's pleasure is shamed in some way. And this work is such a sort of force of radical liberation against that in such a nuanced and complex way that when you first told me about it, I you told me about it before I actually saw the images and then you mm-hmm. sent me the work. And then we've talked about it I think a year or two after you started as well. And it's interesting to see how it's evolving because it's so, obviously fantasies is such a diverse and sort of unlimited realm. But it's really interesting thinking about actually how some people's fantasies are truly speak to their lived experience and maybe traumas that they've been through or, you know, the stress of even experiencing things like the revolution and like the explosion have sort of informed people's sexual fantasies in some ways. Every time we talk, it makes me question things in a very good way. But I think that what it made me discover is not about other people's fantasies because it's their own and it's their own baggage and their own things, but it's more about myself and my link to sexual fantasies and sexuality in general. And for me, this project of uh, sexual fantasies was kind of uh, coming out in an intertwined way. It was a way of coming out as neurodivergent and also in my sexuality, it was a coming out. So I think that the things that I have learned are more personal than social in general. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. It's interesting because this body of work operates on so many different levels. Like it's exceptionally localized, but it's also... I wanted to say that the geography is literally our bodies. So it's not only a location, a site-specific project. Like it's not only Lebanon-specific. Yeah, exactly. I, I love the way you talk about the site of the body and how intimacy is so political. And and also, I guess for me, like in terms of thinking about how this project reaches like a really big audience, it's so many aspects of women's lives have been deemed unserious for sort of Mm -hmm. creative study and and academic study, simply just because they belong to the world of us. (laughs) And so subjects like sex and sexual fantasies and masturbation and you know, also to some degree like birth and menstruation and menopause, yes. they, they're all often like rejected or shamed or ridiculed or dismissed by the culture. Uh, and sometimes that also breeds that sort of inculcated misogyny in us against mm-hmm. ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, that's why this work really speaks to both our liberation, but also the ways the patriarchy kind of cultivates sexism in our unconscious. Exactly. You put the perfect words on this. And you were talking about other aspects of our bodies and existence. And I think that this is what I wanted. I want to tackle next. It's very linked to what I'm working on right now, but it's uh, how medical research is mostly done on white cis men. And this is why we've been dismissed in so many ways. And I'm very interested to work on this and to like to listen to our voices again, like to work from a local point of view on this in kind of the same way as the sexual fantasies. That sounds amazing. Is that something that you're sort of developing and researching? 
Yes, I started working on it and I thought that it was part of the sexual fantasies. And then I was like, no, let's not mix everything. It's the next chapter. So yeah, I'll be diving into it more in the upcoming years. That's so exciting. It's it's really interesting, kind of as you touched upon then, how everything you do is about the body or bodies, mm -hmm. like our internal bodies, our external bodies, the force of our bodies, the agency. The, That's true. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting that everything comes back to that. Before we jump into the quickfire questions, I'd love to talk to you about another really special project you're involved in, which is Al Hire magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came about and your role and kind of the journey of that brilliant independent magazine? It's a feminist bilingual magazine in which we publish literary and visual content on the works and interests of women in the region. And when I say the region, I mean women connected to the MENA region. So we started it in July 2020, so right before the explosion, with five Lebanese women, uh, Maya Mumne, Yasmin Rifai, uh, Sally Shamas, Dorothy Sha'ra, and Mia Aii. And I am one of the co-founders and the photo editor. And as the photo editor, what I do is literally hyper-focus on a special interest, which is images, and like curating visuals from the region and building bridges between these different stories. You and the team have done such an amazing job. I feel like it's, it's one of those special publications that feels so made by a community for a community that we just need more and more of. Exactly. How do you deal with self-doubt? How do I deal with self-doubt? Um, Self-destruction, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Such a unique answer. Creatively, what can you not live without? These are hard questions. I, I did warn you, I'm sorry. I want to say images, but the first thing I thought about was singing alone at home. So I don't know. <laughs> oh my God, both excellent answers. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more like, I don't know, releasing than singing at home or singing yes. in your car or singing exactly. anywhere. Yes. How do you deal with the pressure to follow up after one project finishes and then you're like moving on to something else? Oh, it comes very naturally. It's not pressure for me. Ah, love that. <laughs> what does photography enable you to do that perhaps if you were doing a different discipline or job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to access? Everything. Getting closer to people, communicate with people, exteriorizing things, uh, make things visible, visual, being stimulated by visuals, everything, literally everything. Is there anything that you're unlearning? Uh, everything also. <laughs> <laughs> so true. We all are, aren't we, right? Do you think photographs have the power to shift thinking or consciousness? Yes, definitely. To finish up, I wanted to ask you the question I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final photograph? Both are a whole world, so both are so important. But I would say the process is very, like it's not one thing, it's many things, and it's the process is very important for me. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing about your work and just like joining me and being on the show. I love being in dialogue with you. And it was, yeah, really exciting Thank to talk. You. Thank you. Same here, really, really. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. 
You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.